Amen. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out, turn to the Gospel of John. If you're here this morning and you're a guest and you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to look in the pews in front of you. There is a black Bible there. If you don't own a Bible and you want to read it, you're welcome to take that Bible home with you. We're going to be in the Gospel of John in chapter 2. If you're like me and you didn't grow up reading the Bible and you're not really super familiar with how to find things, the chapters are the big numbers and the verse numbers are the little numbers. So when you get to the Gospel of John, we'll be in big number 2, little number 1. Let me read the text and we will dive in. The wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It's completely sufficient for all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? Amen. In 1983, David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear. You guys remember that? I wasn't there. I was still three years from being born at this event. But when I was a kid, I had a friend who had it recorded on VHS And anytime I would go over to his house, that was the first thing I would run to, that and his Ace Ventura uh, VHS. And I would pop it in the VCR. Kids, ask your parents what a VCR is. Remember last week, newspaper, this week, VCR? What is it? When I was a kid, I loved magic. I probably liked magic a little too much, even as I got into my preteen and teenage years. Uh, When I first moved to Decatur, there was a magic shop down by the Skate Castle. Do you all remember that? Right by the skate castle down there, there was the, the putt-putt golf and then the skate castle and there was all these little shops and one of them was a magic shop and I can still remember the feeling of wonder in my heart as I would go into the shop and I would peer into the glass case and I would see all these different tricks that I could purchase and maybe do and the guy who ran the shop, he was super kind. He would perform these tricks for me uh, even when I didn't have any money to buy them, which is always and uh, I would just love going in there. And so I remember one day I finally saved up enough money to buy my first magic trick. The first one that I bought was a little guillotine thing where it would make people think that I was going to chop my finger off. That was great. And then I had another one where I could put an egg in a bag and the the egg would disappear. 
And then my final one was this container where I would put an egg in it, and I would put the top on, and I'd take the top off, and lo and behold, there would be a live baby chick. I would do these magic tricks everywhere I went, no matter how lame they were. I would do them in the halls at school. I would do them for the kids in the neighborhood. I even did the talent show, right? Do they still do that, talent shows in school? All right, I did it. I was amazing. Imagine David Copperfield, but like a husky-looking Chicano seventh grader. Like, I was, that was me. I haven't thought about magic in a while, and I started thinking about it this week as I was studying the text, the text where Jesus turns water into wine, a text, or maybe if you're like me and you didn't grow up in the church and you didn't know how to read the Bible, you probably still heard this story. It's one of the most famous ones in, that we have in God's Word. You see, there, there are a bunch of water-to-wine magic tricks that you can like, go on Amazon and, and purchase today. And they don't all work the same. Uh, the most popular one is probably the version where you coat the inside of the glass with a chemical and then you put some of the chemical in the water and both of these chemicals are invisible to the naked eye. And when you pour the, the, the water into the glass, there's a chemical reaction and the water turns rosy uh, pink. And ooh, it's fantastic, you know, very impressive. There's another version using a trick glass. I won't get into that. Like a lot of magic tricks, when you see how it works, it's not that impressive. But as I read this week's text, I kept thinking about how I would have read it back before I became a Christian. And I think I would have thought about this story in one of two ways. I would have thought either A, this doesn't happen, wine doesn't turn into water, or I would have thought B, this is a magic trick. You know, a 2,000-year-old ancient Near Eastern magic trip performed by a rabbi named Jesus. So I think the first option, that this didn't happen, it just seems pretty unlikely. I mean, when you look at this account, you see that it's very detailed. It's an eyewitness report. John says it happened on this day, and he said it happened in this city, which is the Cana in Galilee. And then he tells you the event where it happened, and it tells you who all was there and who was in charge. And then he even tells you this seemingly unflattering part of the story where Jesus appears to be rude to his mom. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Right? Say that to your mom in the South, see what happens. (laughs) But as you read this, it doesn't read like a fable. It reads like reportage. Well, then I started thinking, okay, if maybe this was a magic trick, and, and if I would have read it that way, how would I have gone about performing that? But then the more I looked at the details of the story, the more I thought, there's just no way. I mean, first, let's think about using chemicals to turn the water into wine. First of all, they didn't have those kind of chemical compounds 2,000 years ago. But even if they did, we see, like, in the story, those who were present actually drank the wine, right? You couldn't do that with the chemicals. It makes you sick. On top of that, if you did drink the wine, which apparently it went off without a hitch, everyone at the party kept drinking the wine... Uh, if you were to drink wine with chemicals in it, you would taste the chemicals, right? So that, that probably didn't happen. And then the master of the feast, as he tastes this new wine, he says it's delicious. It's so good that he goes to the guy and he's like, yo, you had some really good wine saved. That was really smart of you. Then I thought, uh, maybe he pulled the old switcheroo, you know. They kept a little bit of wine on the side for themselves, and then when it ran out, they brought it out, and they kind of saved the day. But that doesn't really work either, uh, because everyone at the party seemed to continue to drink wine, and that would have had to have been a lot of wine, not a little bit that you had stashed on the side. 
Then I thought, maybe they just switched the stone jars with all the water in it out for stone jars that had the wine in it. But that seems pretty unlikely, too. The, the text has, tells us that there are six stone jars. These things are heavy. They each contain 20 to 30 gallons of water. Not only the stone jars heavy, but the water itself, 20 to 30 gallons apiece, that would have been 160 to 240 pounds of water on top of the stone weight. That would have taken a large team of people, maybe a couple of oxen and carts, and a lot of, in the words of George Bush, strategery, okay? And then on top of that, you take into account the fact here that this wasn't planned. You don't throw a party in the ancient Near East with wine and plan to run out of wine. This was an embarrassing oversight. Then I thought, maybe... Jesus turned the water into wine. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, says it like this. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Friends, this shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't get all wrapped around the axle about Jesus performing a miracle. If you've been here as we've been walking through the Gospel of John, we've seen from the very first word in the very first chapter of this Gospel, John has been telling us that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was the agent of creation. If Jesus can fling all of existence into existence, then turning water into wine is like a trivial party trick. Not, not, not that hard. Probably didn't have to break a sweat to do it. So yeah, Jesus performing miracles, yeah, that, it makes sense. What we probably need to spend more time on this morning is asking ourselves why John chooses to include this sign, this miracle, in his gospel. Remember in chapter 20, John said that if he were to sit down and write out all the miracles that Jesus performed, the world wouldn't have enough room for all the books. He's being hyperbolic, right? He, he, he probably could. But the point is, Jesus did a lot of miracles. So why did John choose to leave out some of the miracles that Jesus performed and include this miracle right here at the beginning of his gospel? You have to remember, friends, that every miracle that Jesus performs is a sermon. There's a reason behind it. Jesus is not like some guy at a party performing tricks to try to win bets and impress his guests. Everything that he does has a reason behind it. So what is the reason behind this miracle in this morning's text? Well, that's what we're going to see together. Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, you have told us in your word that these things are recorded for us so that we may believe. So, Father, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Let your Holy Spirit be at work in our hearts, even right now in this room, to prepare us to believe in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do what we've done for the last couple of weeks. We're going to walk through the text. We're going to make sure we understand the narrative and all the details and the historical background. And then we're going to come back through and talk about what it means for us. Okay, so let's talk about the narrative. First, you'll see as you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, in the very first verse, it, it says that it happens on the third day. Now, this third day, it doesn't mean the third day of the week. It also doesn't mean the third day of Jesus' first public week in ministry. 
It actually means the third day from the last day that John wrote about. I know that's kind of complicated. It's the Jewish way of recording numbers. You had to be there to really understand it and appreciate it. But basically, that's when this happens. And it's probably on the seventh day of Jesus' first week in ministry. And then next, if you keep reading, you see that it took place uh, at a wedding at Cana of Galilee. Now, this happened just uh, not very far from where we were last week when Nathaniel encountered Christ. So Jesus has been on the move, but he hasn't moved very far and he hasn't moved very fast. He's in close proximity. Okay, now let's talk about the significance of this event taking place at a wedding. Okay, uh, what we need to understand in order to really understand this text is the significance of the way weddings worked in the ancient Near East, how important of an event it was. In modern times, uh, a bride can spend uh, months, maybe even years, planning their wedding, maybe even their whole lives, right? If you want the, the fairy tale princess wedding, you can spend your whole life planning the wedding. Uh, but even if you spend your whole life planning a wedding, the wedding typically doesn't last longer than a half a day, right? You spend the morning getting ready, and then the event finally starts, and you have the ceremony, and then after the ceremony, you have the reception. And then after the reception, everyone says bye, and the couple goes off to their honeymoon. Isn't it beautiful? In the ancient Near East, a wedding was a much, much bigger event than that. It was a communal event that could last upwards of a week. Imagine being like, hey, I'm going to go to this party. I'll see you all in a week, right? That, that's what would happen in the ancient Near East. That was typical. It was a massive social function, a huge celebration. We're going to talk about that more in a little bit, Okay. So now that we got that, we see that Jesus' mom was there, the text tells us, and the mother of Jesus was there. And then we see that Jesus and his disciples were invited, okay, we see that as well. And then in verse 3, we read this. This is where things start to get a little tricky. When the wine ran out. Now, for us, that wouldn't be great if we ran out of wine at a, at a wedding, but it wouldn't be a big, it wouldn't be a huge deal, right? Weddings always have logistical issues, I tried to like tune into the mind of like a woman planning a wedding as I, as I thought about this, right? The caterer says, we're out of salmon. Is that right? Stuff like that happens? Okay. Uh, we have to do tulips instead of daffodils on the table arrangements, right? That kind of thing. Uh, we can't find the corsages. Oh, no. Not great, but not really a big showstopper either. I mean, even if something at the wedding goes really, really wrong and the bride is in the back, like going full bridezilla, having an anxiety attack, almost another, no one other than the bride and maybe the groom really care, right? Because that's not what you're there for. You're there to celebrate these two people who love each other. They're getting married. Oh, it's just a celebration. And yeah, who cares if the DJ doesn't show up or if we run out of the quinoa salad, all right? It's just not that big of a deal. But in the ancient Near East, running out of wine at a wedding would have been a game changer. It would have been a showstopper. It would have been such a big deal that it would have brought an immense amount of shame on the family of the groom who was the one who was supposed to be planning the wedding. It was such a big, big deal, in fact, that most scholars think that this could have opened the family up to legal action. The, the family of the bride could have sued the family of the groom. Hey, this was supposed to be our big day, and you ruined it because you didn't bring enough wine. It's a big deal. On top of that, Mary's comment in verse 5 seems to indicate that she has some kind of responsibility over the party. Look, look at verse 5. 
right? She says, uh, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Mary has some kind of authority over the servants who are present at this. Why is that? Not entirely sure. Best guess is that Mary was probably related to the family of the groom, okay? And so she was in some way part of the planning crew. She was, in a modern wedding, she probably would have been one of the ones walking around with like a headset on, you know, like, have we found the corsages, right? That's kind of what Mary's doing here at this wedding. Now, what's really interesting here is that Mary, when she encounters this problem, goes to Jesus to ask him to fix it. We don't have any wine, Jesus. What are we going to do? Now, the obvious question here that we have to ask is, why does Mary go to Jesus? Well, there are a couple different thoughts on the matter. One thought is just that Jesus is Mary's firstborn son, and hey, we got to what are we going to do? I'm going to go to my boy. I'm going to go to the, the head of the family. A lot of scholars think that maybe at this time, Joseph, uh, Mary's husband, had already died, left her as a widow. So she could have been going to Jesus and saying, hey, help, I don't know what to do. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that Mary already knew something of the power of Jesus. And so she went to him expecting him to do a miracle. Now, commentators are quick to write this off. They say that probably isn't the reason why, and you can see that when you look in verse 11. In verse 11, we see, this is the first of the signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, okay? Uh, So what John says is this is Jesus' first big public sign in his ministry. Therefore, Mary probably never saw Jesus do a miracle before, so she probably wouldn't expect him to do a miracle and therefore wouldn't go to him and ask him to do a miracle, I'm not so sure that's right. Let me just spend some time explaining why I I think I disagree with that. It's true that this is Jesus' first public ministry sign, wherein he begins to reveal his glory as the Christ, as the Messiah, in a more public way. That doesn't mean that his mom didn't have any idea of who he was or what he was capable of, right? When you consider the nature of a mother-son relationship and how close moms can be to their children, it seems unlikely. On top of that, when you look at what the Bible says about Mary and what she was told about Jesus, it seems even more unlikely, right? Remember, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Mary, when she was pregnant, was visited by an angel, Gabriel. And then she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. She had to know that something was different about Jesus, okay? If that alone is what happened, she had to know that something was different. But then on top of that, the wise men came down and offered gifts and bowed down to her when she uh, had the baby, right? They're down there worshiping baby Jesus. And then let's not forget about the whole Jesus being left behind and teaching in the synagogue and the parents show up and they're like, hey man, uh, where were you? And Jesus goes, I'm busy in my father's house. And his parents kind of receive it. That's a big deal. And just from the first few years of Jesus' life, we see that his parents seem to have an understanding that he is exceptional. Consider what Luke says about Mary and her gospel. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary had to know. She had to know. And when she had a need the first thing she did was go to Jesus in faith and ask him for help. Do I need to do application on that? Isn't that kind of obvious? Isn't that kind of self-evident? 
I'll do it anyways. When you have a need, what is your first instinct? Is it to say, I got this? Is it to say, let me ask a friend. Let me cash in some of my favors. Let me use some of my resources. Or is it, let me go to Jesus? Because I know that he is exceptional and he can meet me in my hour of need. All right, let's move on. Let's make sure that we're tracking with the story here, okay? Now let's get to Jesus' response to his mom, which kind of hits our modern ears a little sideways. Maybe as we were reading it, you were like, whoa, Jesus, chill. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? All right, let's, let's first address the way Jesus addresses his mom, woman. Uh, the Greek word here for woman, it's not really rude or disrespectful. When we read this, we can probably import stuff into this title that wouldn't have struck Mary in any kind of way. It sounds weird to us. It's probably the ancient Greek equivalent of ma'am. Now, if you're from California like I am, okay, uh, it sounds weird when people say ma'am to their parents and sir to their, fa- you know, to their dads. Uh, I had to get used to that. But now, like, I tell my kids, like, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, take the trash out. Fine. Uh, I think what you mean is, yes, sir, right? So if you're from the South, it actually kind of feels pretty normal. And so it wouldn't really surprise me if that was just the way Jesus was addressing his mom, and it just sounds weird to us, okay? But then you have the part that I think is maybe even a little more concerning. The way Jesus responds to his mom, not just with a title, but by asking this question, what does this have to do with me? Most people, when they first read this, they think Jesus is being kind of a jerk to his mom, you know? Just him and his homeboys at the party trying to enjoy the celebration. Jeez, mom, I'm with my disciples. Leave me alone. I don't think that's what's happening here. And I think you can see that in the next phrase. The next phrase that Jesus says is, my hour has not yet come. Let's put a pin in that. We're going to come back and explore that in a minute. Right now, we're just making sure we understand the details. Now, we see from what happens next that Mary must not have been that offended by Jesus' comments because she immediately goes to the servants and says, hey, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. He's going to take care of this. So there must be something going on here that we don't immediately see in the text. Whatever it is, Mary thinks, whatever Jesus just said to me, I take that to be a yes, I'll help you, Mom, okay? Then in verses 6 through 11... We get tons of detail, right? Like, if John were there in person, which he probably was, most scholars believe that he was the second disciple that wasn't named, that started following Jesus back in chapter one, uh, uh, then it would make sense that he would have access to all these details, right? So in verse six, he tells us big stone jars, six of them. He tells us what the stone jars were used for, purification rites, probably washing of the hands and utensils according to Jewish law at a big celebration like this. Then in verse 7, we see Jesus' exact instruction to the servants. Fill them up all the way to the brim. Then in verse 8, Jesus tells one of the servants, draw some water out, take it to the master of the feast so that he can see that everything's going to be okay. Then in verse 9, we see the master of the feast taste the wine. And the text tells us he didn't know where he came from, where it came from, but he must have thought he knew because after he tastes it, he goes to the groom. He's like, hey, man. I thought we ran out of wine. You sly dog. We didn't run out of wine. You were saving the best for last. And his argument here goes like this. In the ancient Near East, at a celebration like this, where people are consuming Lord knows how much wine, what they would do is they would serve the bad wine first until people got a little tipsy, right? 
And then once they got a little, uh, excuse me, they would still serve the good wine first. People would be like, oh, this wine's so good. And then when they were a little tipsy, they'd bring out the bad wine because they wouldn't really know the difference, okay? And so, yeah, that's what's happening up to that point. And then, in verse 11, John puts a bow on the whole thing. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed. So that's the text. Was, it, was that helpful? We think we all kind of understand a little bit more of what's going on here. It's not just like a magic trick in Jesus' ministry. I think we can say that at one level, we understand the text now. But I would say that at another, deeper, more spiritual level, uh, we actually probably don't understand it very much at all. I think the heart of this morning's account, this story, is bound up with understanding Jesus' interaction, his conversation with his mother. And if we're being honest, we, we don't really know still what's going on there. We've kind of cleared away some of the brush, but we don't know exactly what was going on there. So we're going to spend the rest of the sermon talking about that after I make a one-off application point, okay? I want us to spend just a minute talking about alcohol. Uh, I'm just going to state it pl- plainly. If you're a note taker, you can just put this in big, bold letters right there in your notebook. Drinking alcohol is not a sin. doesn't say it anywhere in the Bible. Anybody who knows me knows that I don't drink alcohol. I don't have any... I, there's, there's nothing in this for me. I'm not trying to fight for my right to party. All right? A little older people, beastie boys. Okay. It's just not in Scripture. As a matter of fact, alcohol, particularly wine in the Bible, is seen as a symbol of prosperity and joy and blessing from God. Listen to some Scriptures. Psalm 104. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. That's from Psalm 104. From Proverbs 3, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, it's true that in biblical times, wine was cut down, it was watered down, and so it wouldn't have been as potent as like maybe even our modern wine, but you could still get drunk off of it, which is why Paul tells the church at Ephesus, don't get drunk with wine, because you could get drunk with wine. So let's be clear, getting drunk is a sin. It's letting something external to you other than the Holy Spirit control you when the Spirit of God is the only thing that should be controlling your life, your mind, your will, your emotions. So... The Bible is clear, don't get drunk. But drinking alcohol itself is not necessarily a sin. If you look in verse 10 where it says, when the people have drunk freely, that word in the Greek is actually a little bit more, it's a little stronger than what we have it translated here. It actually just means inebriation, right? It really means when the people at the party have gotten a little drunk, that's when we bring out the less good wine, okay? Or to use Michael Wallace's terminology, when you get soused up, all right? That was a new one for me the first time I heard it. So this wine that Jesus turned the water into was really wine with alcohol in it. Now, what I want you to see here is that in Jesus' mind, the fact that someone could get drunk off of wine is not an ethical issue for Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, Mom, I know you want me to turn this water into wine, but I want you to know my conscience is bound over the matter. Somebody could use this wine to get drunk, and I'm just not okay with that. No. No. 
Wine, like most good things in this fallen world, is a good gift from God that we, because we're sinners, can use and abuse to our own harm. But that doesn't mean it has to be used that way. Now, I'm not going to turn this into a whole sermon on alcohol. I just want to make sure that in a church like ours, full of conservative Christians, right, a bunch of Bible-thumping, wingnut evangelicals, that we know that the Bible does not say that drinking alcohol is a sin. And I think one of the easiest places to see the proof of something like that is that Jesus doesn't find it to be an ethical issue to turn water into wine. And I also want to point out while I'm here that Jesus wasn't a monk. Sometimes when we think about Jesus, you know, we just think he's just walking around home, you know, and he's... He's blessing some people, and he's cursing other people, and he's do, only doing miracles, you know, and oh man, if only we could be as holy as Jesus. And that's true. But our version of holiness doesn't have to be curmudgeonly, right? Jesus was invited, invited to a celebration, and he went. His mom said, hey, we need to keep the party going, and he said, okay, I'm here to help. Jesus, friends, is not the fun police, God's not up there in heaven unhappy any time that you happen to be having a celebration. God wants us to be happy. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to die so that we could be full of joy. And the joy that we receive as Christians is not a joy where we just sit around pointing fingers at everyone else who's doing all the fun stuff. So if you're the kind of Christian that equates holiness with being grumpy or abstaining from this food or that drink, I just want to let you know you might be a little out of step with Jesus. And what his version of holiness is. Okay, enough of that. Let's get to the meaning of the text. Let's really dig in and see what's happening here between Jesus and his interaction with his mom. I told you earlier that in order to understand this, you have to understand what Jesus says when he says, my hour has not yet come. But it's kind of a catch-22, because in order to understand that phrase, you kind of have to understand the whole gospel of John. You guys got it? Everybody understand the whole Gospel of John? Front to back? Nah, me, me neither. Let me try to help you a little bit, okay? In the first half of John's Gospel, there's one phrase that Jesus is constantly repeating. Over and over again. If you want, you can just go in and like type it into your word search later, or you can take a Bible and read it and highlight it. Over and over again, through the first half of John's gospel, people are coming up to Jesus, trying to get him to reveal his glory, and he says, my hour has not yet come. Hour is just a Hebrew idiom. It means my time has not yet come. Until you get to chapter 12, halfway through the gospel, Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then what you see happening from chapter 12 all the way to the end of the gospel is that Jesus is moving relentlessly towards the cross. So the hour or the time of Jesus in John's gospel, it refers to his glorification in the gospel, right? It refers to his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. But it's not referring to those events merely as events, it's referring to those events in what they signify and what they accomplish. Jesus on the cross pays the penalty for sin that we could never pay. He dies the death that we could never die. He saves the people for himself. Then he's buried. And in that burial, we see a picture of our spiritual death. And then when he's resurrected, 
He is given victory over Satan and death and hell. And that, in the Gospel of John, is my hour. Now, do you know what other image God uses all throughout the Gospel, all throughout the Bible, to communicate the image of the glory of Jesus in the Gospel? A wedding feast. It's all throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 25, we read about the Messianic feast. It says this, On the mountain of the Lord, the hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And remember, the well-aged wine, it's the good wine. Of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. Who does that sound like? This messianic figure from Isaiah. He's going to take death away from us. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And on that day it will be be said, Behold, This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah says the day is going to come when God's going to come and save not just his people Israel, but all the peoples of the earth, and it's going to be like a big wedding feast, a big celebration. And then after that, you can see we could do more, we could show you other places in Scripture, but I just want to take you to the end of the Bible in Revelation 19. The author of Revelation takes up that exact language from Isaiah and says, the God who is going to come and save is Christ. And listen to the language. He says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice. It's a good time. Let us exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. That's the church. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then John speaking, he says, And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Are you guys seeing this? Here we see the glorious gospel of Christ pictured as a cosmic marriage. And Jesus is the groom, and the church is his bride. And you know what comes after the wedding? The wedding feast. And at the wedding feast, we already know from what we read in this morning's text who is going to be responsible for providing the wine. Is it the bride? No, it's the groom. Jesus will bring the wine to the party. So when Mary comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, we're out of wine, Jesus does what he always does. He gives a multi-layered answer. The first layer is, I'm not the groom. What, What do you want me to do about that? But the second layer, the deeper layer, the gospel layer, says, This isn't my wedding. My hour has not yet come. But the wedding is coming. 
I will be the groom one day. There's going to be a wedding. There's going to be a big wedding feast, and it's going to be glorious, and I'm going to draw all the nations to myself, and I will bring the wine to that party. And what kind of wine is Jesus going to bring to the party? Is he going to bring the bad wine that people can only enjoy after they've gotten a little tipsy? No. That's not what Isaiah says. It says he's going to bring the well-aged wine, the refined wine, the wine that all the wine snobs who take vacations out to Napa Valley swirl around in their glass and they smell it and they sip it. Oh, this is the finest wine. That's the wine that Jesus is going to bring to the eternal party in heaven. And we see that, a picture of that in what happens in these events. Friends, Jesus doesn't turn the water into good wine just so he can be the very best host. You know, like if you love to have people over and you wait until like the kids go to bread and you bring out like the, the best bourbon, the old well-aged bourbon, and people go, oh man, you're the best host. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing the best wine out. He's turning the water into the best wine so that people will know what is yet to come. There's a theological reason behind this. I also want you to see from this text that there's a reason why the water that is turned into wine is described as the water of the purification rites. That's what the text says, right? Now, verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. What you see here is an intentional contrast between the old ways of the law and the new ways of the covenant. Old, stale water. It's been sitting there in jars. I think about when Amber and I lived in the jungle as missionaries. We would draw water from the well and then we would take it out and we would put it in these big hundred gallon drums and we would use it to shower and wash dishes and (laughs) bathe our kids and do everything, right? And it was good for it to sit for a little while because all the sediment would, would drop and you could pull the good water from the top. But if it sat there for long, it became gross. You couldn't use it. You had to dump it out and, and start all over again. That's what you should be thinking about here with this water. It's been sitting there for some time. It's old, stale water. But Jesus turns it into new wine. The old purification rites of the law, they couldn't make anyone actually clean. You can wash your hands and clean your dishes and dump it over your head, but you still got sin in your heart. But Jesus comes and he turns that into the new wine of the covenant, which represents his blood which is actually able to cleanse us from our sin. Water of the law, blood of the new covenant. So friends, do you see now? Do you see why John records this sign for us? It's not just a miracle. It is a miracle, but it's not just a miracle. It's a sermon. It's a promise. It's Jesus using an opportunity from his everyday life to point his followers, even his mother, to eternal life. And you can see that it works because at the end of the text we read, and the disciples believed. That's the good news. The good news, friends, is that if you in your need go to Christ and trust in what he has provided for you, and you believe, then you will be saved. And you will be invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. But before you can understand how good the good news is, you have to understand the bad news. 
Before we can celebrate and partake of the sweet, delicious wine of the new covenant, which is Christ's blood, we need to remember that wine in Scripture also represents something other than joy and blessing and prosperity. You see, friends, as you read Scripture, you'll see from front to back that wine also represents the wrath of God. Isaiah 63, God says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Wine, wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed and he said these words, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. That's a heck of a thing for Jesus to say. Jesus, God in the flesh, says, I don't want to drink this. God, please, take this cup away. Well, what cup is he referring to? Psalm 75, 8 tells us, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup that Jesus said he didn't want any part of was the cup of wrath from the Father that was reserved for mankind because of our sin. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you haven't been paying attention and you've been kind of bored and waiting for me to finish, I just want to encourage you to tune back in just for one second. If you don't leave here hearing anything else, I want you to hear this. If you want to have any hope of enjoying God forever and drinking his sweet wine at a party in the sky that will last until the end of eternity, you also have to understand that Christ drank the wine of God's wrath on the cross. And he did it for you. And so now he's calling all men everywhere to repent and to believe in what he did for us so that we could be with him. He didn't do it on the cross so that he could continue to be angry with us. He didn't pour, God didn't pour his wrath out on his son on the cross so that he could just be excited about when he gets to pour his wrath out again. No, he did it with the hope and expectation that you would receive it so that he wouldn't have to give you the wine of wrath so that you could receive the wine of joy. Friends, the entire world has a choice. There's two cups set before us. Which cup will you choose? This morning we're going to be celebrating some baptisms. These baptisms.